As Christians, we believe that Bible reading is one of the church's central spiritual practices. So what happens when it becomes more and more rare for people to read anything at all? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kimnitty and Glenn Powell. And today we're also thrilled to be joined by our friend Andy Crouch. Andy is partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. He's written several books, including Culture Making, The TechWise Family, and most recently, My TechWise Life, co-authored with his daughter, Amy. And along with his TechWise resources, uh, Barna Group, who he's partner w- partnered with to make these resources, has tons of awesome tech-wise resources, videos, multimedia of all sorts. Um, so definitely go check that stuff out. It's, it's really good stuff. But as the Institute for Bible Reading, we understand that part of our mission is to help people read the Bible rather than simply referencing it or picking and choosing pieces out of it. But given our technological environment where focused long-form reading is in decline, that can sometimes feel like a tall task. So we're having Andy on today to pick his brain on the state of reading in general, and also how we can be countercultural as Christians in our commitment to Bible reading. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So great to be with you guys. Yeah, Andy, it's great to have you on. And I have to tell you, after reading all of your books and listening to you talk numerous times, at one point, um, a a, a scripture text came to me. Uh, I cherry-picked it, maybe, but... um, (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Yeah, it, it's. I, I know at least under the context of it, it's David. David surrounded himself with the group of people that were like consultants as the kingdom was expanding. But it uh, says about a group of them that they were the, called the sons of Issachar, and they were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And uh, when we think of you, we think of you in those terms. And we know that didn't come by osmosis. We know it's been a lifetime of work. And uh, anyhow, we talk about uh, you and your books often uh, because we Mm. feel like we're a culture-making organization, and we uh, talk about uh, you and your books in our presentations. So thank you. Wow. So encouraging. Yeah, very good. (laughs) And you you, you do both. I mean, there, there are people that kind of understand the times, but then it ends. And then there's people who understand the times and, and uh, are able then to offer up uh, solutions, not easy ones, but some solutions. And, uh, that that's you and your work. Hey, Gosh. listen, we, um, with all of our guests, we have a tradition to ask them about their Bible journey. And huh. so tell us a little bit about your Bible journey, how you got hooked. Oh man. Uh, I did get hooked in high school as a new believer, uh, from a family that was church going, but but uh, a kind of nominal Christian family in a way that I think is less and less common now, but was pretty common then. Uh, But I had a a really profound uh, initiation into the Christian faith and into the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit when I was in ninth grade. And it was initially through the charismatic uh, renewal that was kind of moving through uh, the Catholic Church in the Boston area where, where I was living, but also my own Methodist church. And so that expression of Christianity was actually uh, had reverence for the Bible, but very little kind of engagement with it directly. It was it was about worship. It was about prayer and and the power of God 
present, you know, and all that was really meaningful to me as a teenager. Uh, but there was a local um, uh, Christian ministry for kids, kind of just a family run thing. Uh, we'd call it a parachurch ministry now, I guess, that found our group of kids in my high school who were all having these really quite deep encounters with God and one another and community, but had no discipleship. And they said, would you like to do a Bible study? And so the, these two uh, guys who worked for that ministry uh, would show up at 6 a.m., if I'm not misremembering, at one of my friend's houses who lived near the high school. And I vivid, I can picture it to this day. This is now uh, 40 years ago almost. Um, I can picture the manuscript pages on which they printed uh, John, the up, well, first the, the uh, Vine discourse from John. <laughs> I read the Bible. I don't know what the mm. chapter numbers are. What is that? John 13? We uh, don't worry about the numbers. So <laughs> I, John, I didn't, John didn't know them. So I don't, even know, I don't even know those numbers. Uh, I'm the vine. You're the branches, right? All that printed out on kind of manuscript style on paper. I think the verse numbers were there, but it was just the text. And they led us week after week, these high school students who were willing to show up at 6 a.m. on a Thursday through a, a just deep, careful, patient, reading, rereading, mm. uh, questioning, interacting with, with the words of Jesus. And it was intellectually stretching. It was spiritually like renovating. <laughs> mm. uh, it was an amazing experience of just community, like doing something with other people that was very meaningful. I formed some amazing friendships through that group. And, and I really admired those two young men who led that that study. And they would show up also, I should say, with their uh, their Greek New Testaments. And I thought, I've got <laughs> to learn Greek. Like, it's clearly the secret key. So just one more thing, Paul, on your question about the journey. So I went to college um, to major in classics. So I would learn the at least the New Testament language um, and quickly found out how bad the Greek of the New Testament is. Uh, it, so that that text from John that we had read, of course, in English, in Greek reads like a third grade, almost children's book. I mean, it's just not, it, it's not elevated language. It's not excellent rhetorical Greek. Now, Luke is excellent Greek. Hebrews is excellent Greek, but John is not. Mark is actually bad Greek in places. He's clearly not a native speaker. And it was such a discovery, uh, discovery to me to realize um, that sort of linguistic and literary excellence, though they are good things and they are in our Bible at points, are not the essence of the the inspiration of the Bible. <laughs> the the power of the Bible is elsewhere. And I also learned that actually reading it in the original Greek doesn't like give you the secret key to holiness. <laughs> and then actually when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches in Greek, that means I'm the vine, you are the branches. There's like, there's no like secret <laughs> decoder ring. And right. that was a little bit of a letdown, but actually led me into this wonderful journey just with the classical languages and literature and that whole world, the Greco-Roman world, um, which is worth engaging in its own right. And, but also to a very different way of reading the Bible as, as realizing this is, this is literature, but it's not literature in the way high culture thinks of literature. Uh, mm. It's got more power, actually. Um, and maybe I'll say one more thing, Paul. I don't know how long you want these answers to be. Uh, but then after college, I started doing what had been done for me as a, as a high schooler. And the most meaningful thing, in some ways, the most meaningful thing I've done in my whole life uh, was for, for, I believe, nine years in a row. Every January, I would print out a set of uh, manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark 
Um, no, no chapters and verses, uh, the way you guys have taught me. Um, double spaced on eight and a half by 11 paper and sit down with a group of uh, college freshmen at Harvard College, Harvard University. And we would spend a year reading that together. And mm. those uh, Mark studies convinced me beyond, um, I, I just at the deepest level, that this is the word of God. When you, it, it, it can be unadorned. It, it doesn't have to have all the apparatus that makes a lot of study Bibles seem really special and wonderful, like just the words. <laughs> if you take the time to pay attention, especially if you can do that in community uh, with fellow kind of seekers, fellow disciples, um, every year I would see new things in it. And every year I would see it change students' lives and hearts. And every year I just got more and more convinced there's no other text like these texts. So those are a few early highlights, I guess. Yeah. I mean, in some ways you kind of cut your teeth then on counterculturalism, a high schooler <laughs> at six o'clock in the yeah, morning, yeah. you know, reading, yeah, totally. reading the Bible. Um, <laughs> but I think that's kind of where, you know, where we want to uh, dig into this conversation. I mean, if, we're yeah. gonna, if this is going to get done in this generation, um, they're going to have to be some countercultural things that we do. Oh man. Totally. And I mean, you can't imagine how this was not the Bible Belt. This was, uh, I didn't, I don't know if I said this was in the suburbs of Boston uh, in the 1980s, where there were more churchgoers there than there are now, because church was kind of, a, to some extent, still part of the apparatus of social uh, establishment life, you might say. But it, this was not a region noted for its <laughs> like, spiritual vitality. And there weren't a lot of us, but there were a couple dozen kids in this high school who wanted something real and would show up for it. And that's still true today. Uh, and it's just that maybe mm. the secularity that was kind of my normal experience growing up is now present in more and more of the United States as it's been present for a long time in Europe or Canada or whatever. Um, but that was no barrier um, to the word of God uh, doing its transforming work. Uh, and same at Harvard College in the 1990s. I mean, not a, not a Christian college, but sit down, open up, the Bible with, with students who are willing to do it, and something will happen. All right. Uh, one of the things we want to talk about, Andy, is specifically the state of reading in <laughs> general in our culture related to technology and the pull of technology. We were together last night, and one of the things we said is um, we know people who, when you sit down to just watch a movie together, kind of as an automatic feature of their life, they pull out their phone and just start scrolling. And not for any particular reason. Their phone hadn't buzzed. They weren't calling someone, <laughs> right? Nothing in particular told yeah. them, you need to give attention to this device right now. It's and this is during of, the movie? This is during a movie. As the movie starts. Yeah. This is just, the chance you, you feel to like also... <laughs> every so often, you just have to scroll for a while. Right. See what's happening or, or not, not do anything with it. React, you know, get an important message. It's just there and it must be attended to. So this can't be good for reading in general. Oh, gosh. Absolutely. It's not even so, good for movie watching. in general. Not, yeah, no, well, isn't that interesting? Because obviously the movies, I mean, any movie, uh, a huge group of people has worked to make every moment that you're mm. watching visually captivating. 
And isn't it telling that even with all that effort, I mean, the incredible amount of talent and, you know, uh, human attractiveness and compelling situations and storytelling, all the things that are marshaled to make any anything that is commercial television or film, that even that cannot compete uh, for my need to scratch that itch of um, kind of a personal stream of information, attention, feedback, and, and so forth. That's that's pretty. Yeah. So if if we can't even watch uh, Game of Thrones uh, right. <laughs> uh, without scrolling, how in the world are we going to read uh, something more, maybe less titillating and more challenging? Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I have a couple thoughts. I I think there's like concentric circles here. Um, and maybe there's two axes. One is kind of uh, development of the human mind uh, through through our lives, and the other is uh, kind of different levels of temptation in a way. So maybe I'll start with the second because here's what here's what I'm thinking. We're all aware of how distracting um, our devices are. So so that is the the buzzing and the 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 notification, the ding, the you know the alarm. Um, that's where our devices kind of intrude, right? So that's that's the first level. Is we've just got a lot of things that notify us right now that something's happening we need to pay attention to other than what we're, we're doing right now. Like I'm thinking about how many steps <laughs> I have to go through as we sit down for this podcast to eliminate notifications. There's so many things that want to tell me stuff <laughs> while we're talking. Right. Um, and I actually think one of, the magics of, one of the magic of podcasts and why they're so popular right now is that they at least the people having the conversation have kind of committed to, to low distraction. Like even if we were sitting having dinner, the norm in our culture would be that we, we would expect one another to be distracted at some point, right? Oh yeah. You know, Paul's getting a call from his, his wife or his family or whatever, you know? Um, but, uh, but on a podcast, we're kind of committing. I'm, I'm in a notification free zone and that leads to a kind of conversation that we're starved for in this world. Mm. So, so there's the distraction layer, which is the, the active intervention of the device to get your attention. Then there's, I think, what you're getting at. Even without the the, the active layer, nothing's buzzing. But I, there's the, I don't know what to call it. The, um, I, I, well, here's what I actually think it is. It's the significance layer. So the significance layer is I want to know that I matter, um, and my devices are incredibly well designed to tell me about things that matter to me and to kind of tell me that I matter to other people. That's why Instagram, <laughs> all right, here's a slightly odd um, uh, disclosure. Instagram knows without my ever having told it, I can assure you, my, my girlfriends from high school, because when they like a post, it tells me. And when Glenn Paul likes a post, it doesn't notify me. <laughs> Okay, right? Because Instagram has somehow figured out that though I've been married happily, faithfully, and I don't, I do not regret anything about uh, how I've ended up in my life, except that those people are significant to me in a certain way. We're really only connected on Instagram. There's no other connection uh, in my life with these uh, women, uh, truth, truly. Uh, and, and yet Instagram has somehow figured out that I respond just a little faster wow. to that like, right? So Instagram has figured out which indicators of significance, you know, so-and-so liked your post will, will give you the, the biggest hit of dopamine. 
and how to serve that up at, in, in the right frequency and the right timing to tell you you matter. And that, I think, is in a lot of ways what we're scrolling for is, do I matter? Has something happened that matters to me? And, and so it's this uh, inability to decenter myself and not worry about what I, whether I matter or not. And that's, of course, what's required to really get into a story. You've got to come to believe that that person in the story matters more than you for a little while. That that character, mm. you're you're caught up in their significance, their narrative of significance, but but our devices are always offering to recenter you on on your own um, anxieties, your fantasies, your the wounds in your past, the hopes you have for your future, all that stuff. They're amazingly good without you ever telling them <laughs> at, at tapping into that. Um, so then, another layer below that is um, is well, I think, let me just stop with this one. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I, there's a lot of layers. Lots of layers. <laughs> I, I think ultimately what this is about is superpowers. So the idea of superpower is it combines two things, incredible efficacy and agency on the one hand with low effort on the other. So a superpower is something amazing you're able to do without trying very hard. So like the original superhero, Superman, when he sets out to fly, um, it's been a while since I watched Superman, but my impression is he kind of just does it, right? It, he doesn't seem to be working even as hard as a bird works to fly. He doesn't have to think about currents and flapping anything. He just like decides I'm going to fly, right? So that's incredible efficacy. I can fly, but minimal effort. And I think this is the distorted human dream. I don't think mm -hmm. it's actually what we're meant to have or dream of, but every human being has dreamt it from the very beginning. You shall be like God if you eat the fruit, right? You'll know good and evil, superpower. And what do you have to do? Not go through a course of moral education, not study Aristotle and virtue and, you know, whatever. Just bite this fruit <laughs> and bang, you'll, you'll uh, have the superpower of moral knowledge. That's what the serpent promises. Our devices give us that. So whether it's the superpower of information, I can know what's going on at a distance with very little effort. Whether it's the superpower of influence, I can see that 60 people uh, you know, liked my post or 600 people or 60,000 people, depending on your level. Um, and with minimal effort, like it's almost nothing that I have to do to get that sensation of efficacy. Um, how does all this affect reading? Well, so to go back up to the top, I mean, obviously it's hard to read in a focused way if things are interrupting me, whether it's other people or, or devices. So that's pretty obvious. But then there's this second layer, which is reading requires me to decenter myself or to maybe re recenter somehow away from my own immediate preoccupations to something that that if it's a traditional text, let's say, that is, it's not a, a I mean, people are reading more than they ever have, right? Because um, <laughs> I, we're just constantly absorbing words. But I think we're talking about a, a more specific kind of reading here, the kind of reading you do when you read the Bible. If this text was not addressed to me. It doesn't immediately directly center itself on what I care about as much as I might want it to. It requires me to step into another world and care about what's in that world. And so any layer of my life that's constantly training me to go back to that sense that I matter most is going to be a problem. But the deepest thing is 
that this experience of superpowers is, I just think it's the most intoxicating thing. It's, um, it, it's the pressing the accelerator pedal in a car. Like you can go way faster with less effort than you ever could just with your body or even on a bicycle or something like that. And reading, um, I think reading is is not superpower like. <laughs> it, mm. It's it's deliver so superpowers are instantly rewarding. They instantly give us a sense that we matter. And most really worthwhile reading, it takes a long time, even to figure out what what am I actually, what's happening to me as I read this? What am I learning as I read this? What will this mean for my life? How could I use this? You know, how could I turn this into actual efficacy in the world? Most good reading, you don't know. Uh, at the moment you're doing it. So hmm. then just want to quickly, I think there's the developmental thing. So I, you know, I'm sure you all have been uh, uh, reading and thinking about Marianne Wolf's work. Um, she's a scholar of, of uh, this kind of neuropsychology, you might say, of reading. Her book, Reader Come Home, has been uh, much read and discussed in our, ho in our house uh, <laughs> hmm. uh, because it's such a... Um, uh, an acute kind of diagnosis of what's happening. And, and she points out that there's, there's kind of two things going on. If I can vastly oversimplify one is that even for adult brains, the habit of scanning and of kind of distracted reading crowds out the ability to do focused reading. The good news for adult brains is we can actually rewire. I mean, we're, our brains are amazingly plastic and, and even when you've gotten into the shallows, what Nicholas Carr called the shallows, you can get back into the depths if you just start to attend to it and, and commit to it. The more challenging thing is that there seems to be a developmental window between the ages of eight and 10 years old um, where you either acquire the ability to immerse yourself in a text, a verb that matters a lot to your institute and your work. <laughs> In such a way that you're reading with full fluency, that is, you're not conscious of yourself as reading. You're just you're just taking in a story, you're taking in information, whatever. And if kids don't acquire that in that eight to ten age range, it seems that sort of like spoken language, which we acquire at, at ages say one to three or one to four, that if you miss that window, you can acquire what I think she calls, or at least I would interpret as kind of functional literacy. That is, you can read a sign and know what's on the sign and figure out what to do. You can read instructions, but you'll never be able to immerse yourself in a world through a written text. So the biggest, uh, aside from all those dangers that, that all of us experience every day that our devices present to us, um, the biggest single risk is that we could end up with a whole generation of kids who miss the 8 to 10 window. Mm. And, and they'll, they'll be functionally literate in that they will, you know, they'll be able to make their way through a word, a world with written symbols and signs in it, but they will not be able to enter in with that kind of full giving of oneself that, that those who do acquire reading are able to do. And that's, that's the deepest, riskiest layer, because it doesn't seem like in some ways there's any coming back from that. Mm. Um, now, I, I just want to say, because we're all... Christian and we care about the gospel, the, the gospel has thrived and, and gone forth with power in many, many contexts where most people didn't have that kind of fluent literacy. So it's not a death knell for the church, for the spreading of the gospel, for the power of God. At the same time, I think uh, 
there, there are gifts in the Word of God for the people of God. That was kind of the basic insight of the Reformation. <laughs> it's certainly what the Jewish people have cultivated, where all men, all boys and men have learned to read in the Jewish tradition, almost without exception. And then eventually women, girls and women were invited into that as well. Um, it seems like to be the people of God with the Word of God and not acquire and pass on literacy in the deepest sense is, is a failure of vocation, you might say. Uh, two things that I kind of thought of as you were speaking. Um, first of all, just to note, we pay attention to Bible publishing, and we have our own backgrounds in Bible publishing. Yeah. Most of all, it seems like there's one stream of Bible publishing that is trying to do exactly the opposite of what you just described as, as regular <laughs> Bible reading. That is, yeah. they try to say Bible reading is immediately and directly and instantaneously uh, about you. Right, right, right. Right. So some of them actually have put your name into places where there are other <laughs> names or no names. Yeah, right, right, right. right. I know the plans I have for you, Andy. Andy. <laughs> right. And and it seems like, you know, and others are are a little more subtle than that, but still basically selling a particular yeah. Bible product on the basis of it is immediately and directly about you. So yeah. skip the intermediaries. Um we're going to, the second part of this question is I want to ask you about wow. the time, time component, the instantaneous yeah. versus, uh, you know, spending uh, time yeah. is one element of this, but um, uh, not that we have to comment at length about this, but it seems like some people don't really want the Bible to be the Bible that God actually mm. gave us. They want the Bible to be something else in order for it to be seen as useful or helpful mm. or relevant to me. Mm. It, it has to be something other than what it is. That is, it has to be immediately about me. It has to just instantly. And I think right. that's why one, one consequence of that is some parts of the Bible are more easily adapted to that than others. Yes. And so yes. you end up right. skipping right. parts, so, right? The parts that don't work in this new formula, like forget about those. Just, or or just, that you really don't want to insert your, your name. In, yeah, right, uh, right, right. You know. Deuteronomy 28, 29, right? Your life is going to be a disaster and everything you try will fail. And you will be oppressed and robbed Andy. with no one to rescue you. I don't ever see that like being used, right? So, um, but, so there's that. But this other thing about time, I mean, so much of people's lives with technology um, is in social media, especially just this instantaneous Instagram, right? It's instant right. this, Insta. instant that. It's, yeah. it's, there's limits. Like people post long Facebook posts and people say, it's too long. I couldn't read that. TLDR. So, <laughs> yes. So there's this built in bias against like in depth immersion. Yeah. And so um, part of the contention of the Bible being the kind of book that it just is, is, a commitment to stick with it for longer periods of time. So does the, the time thing itself seems like almost impossible to counteract to people who, mm. who get used to and, and, and they don't think about it. They just are in a world where things happen so quickly and the responses, mm. you know, like you're saying, the positive feedback from the, the social media to likes and to particular people, that happens so quickly that how in the world does a culture begin to counteract the effects of this instantaneousness versus things that happen better over time? Mm -hmm. Well, 
Yes. I mean, <laughs> I think you're accurately diagnosing how all of us live to some extent. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think there are people who are so totally off the grid that they live another way, but certainly I recognize a lot of what you're saying in my own life. And I think I'm a worse, I'm, I'm by any measure, a worse reader um, at age 53 than I was at 23. And it's, it's because of the invasion of the instantaneous and the, the, the quickly rewarding in my own life and in my own use mm. of my use of my eyes and mind. Like I, I'm, I, I would say I'm, I'm sure I read more words today than I did when I was 23, but they have this quality of, of sort of evanescence of um, very quick hits. Uh, and by the way, not just hits of positive, but hits of negative are actually very mm. captivating to our body, mind, soul system and, and activate the same dopamine pathways that ha help us handle stress uh, and endorphins as do positive things. Um, and so we also seek those out like, Oh, I'm really mad uh, or I'm really worried or I'm really afraid, but now I feel alive, you know? Hmm. And gosh, yes, I, I feel all of that. Um, it, it does strike me that this kind of ties together to your, both your questions, Glenn. It is interesting, isn't it? That the Bible maybe graciously includes a whole spectrum of kinds of texts. So, you know, Proverbs um, is kind right. of immediately applicable to your life yep. and does very readily lend its... So, so first, it's very quick hits. Like, it's just, you know, a sentence at a time. You, they're not... I mean, there's some reason why they're in the order they are, but they're re they really standalone ideas. And a lot of them are really good standalone ideas. They'd be great tweets, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And they, they're actually, they almost tell you to insert yourself in it. Uh, you know, it's addressed to a young man at, at points, you know, young man, if you want wisdom, here's what to do. But Glenn, if you, you know, Alex, right. Alex yeah. you're, you're the youngest man here. Uh, the rest <laughs> of us don't need to amend our ways, but you need to follow Lady Wisdom, Alex, <laughs> right? So, so um, and then the Psalms, you know, are are a compressed expression of prayer, each one, some of them longer than others, some of them very, very short. And, and, and then on the other hand, obviously you have the, the histories and, and the long, you know, even the longer prophetic books that just require more sustaining. Um, I think this is a gift to us <laughs> that, uh, that in an impatient time, there actually are places to turn in the Bible if you're impatient for someone mm. to tell you <laughs> something mm. that matters yeah. to you. Um, the question is, do you kind of do you paddle around in the shallows or do you take it as an invitation? And, and I think I, could, uh, I sense a bit of um, uh, frustration in your voice with those other Bible <laughs> publishers. <laughs> I get it. I, I guess the charitable. Uh, oh, wait, a distraction. <laughs> wait, who's distraction with that? What? Someone is Sheesh. significant. Someone this is almost, almost worse than being in church and having it go off. So. <laughs> I, I haven't. Uh, never mind. Keep going. Yeah, that's so great. Um, you matter, Paul. You matter to someone. Right. Um, so somebody, somebody just stroked my ego, and I'm. Uh, in a, I went from uh, 17 to 18 likes. Even though the person that I know yeah. that does that, they click. They just go down and click. You know. Hard, so. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so where were we? See, this is the thing that distracts you. You have to. It takes mental effort then to recenter your brain and and all that. Um, so, uh, I really am distracted now. Where, where was I? <laughs> Shoot. Um, you are, gosh, I really do have to recover my train of thought. 
So this paddling around in the shallows. Oh yeah, paddling around the shallows. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. So you're frustrated with these Bible publishers who give people yes. the blank to fill in their name. And I get that. But I think the more charitable thing um, would be to, you know, in the end, I, perhaps, perhaps um, without a lot of thought, maybe, I think what they're trying to do is just get people in the door and, and, and say, this, uh, try this. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's an entry-level strategy for people who won't come in unless they feel like it somehow addresses them. And I guess that, that I would hope that that then leads people to read more broadly, to read more deeply, to find resources like in Super Bible Reading Offers that take them beyond the, sh- the shallows of self, really. Mm. Um, and it does strike me that the best way for that to happen, though, is not a standalone resource that leaves the, re- the reader kind of with, with their own devices. That is, gosh, I need something that speaks to my anxiety today. I need something that makes me feel hopeful today. I need something that tells me what to do today. The best way is actually what I got to experience. I was so blessed, I mean, in the every sense of the word, to have these two young men who had no reason to care about a 13-year-old geeky kid like me and my friends, but who they themselves would get up at 6 a.m. And on the one hand, give me just the text. They didn't have, you know, Andy is the vine, Jesus is the branch, or Andy is the vine, uh, Jesus is the vine, Andy is the branches. They didn't do that kind of stuff. But they were there with me, helping me see how it mattered to me. Mm, yeah. And I think we need to really understand how lonely, anxious, stressed, busy our neighbors are. And, it, and it's a little like the Ethiopian. Now, he's, he's doing a better job. He says, who, who is this guy writing about, the prophet or, uh, himself or someone else? He doesn't say, how does this apply to my life? But he also can't figure it out without Philip there to help him. And, and I think that as, as valuable as texts are, and those of us who have acquired fluent literacy have the great gift of being able to read on our own, the Bible really ultimately is not meant to be read on our own. It's meant to be read in community with other people who help us see that in fact I am in this story. Yeah. And, and it does apply to me. Hey everyone. Hope you're enjoying our interview with Andy Crouch. Our conversation ended up going longer than we expected, so we decided to split it into two separate episodes. So sorry to leave you hanging, but tune into our next episode to hear the second half of our conversation with Andy on technology, distraction, and the state of reading. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one. <laughs>